Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Doherty's Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. We're two days late dropping the podcast, and we apologize. We're on Greek time. Actually, I've been a bit of a hermit since the podcast started in February, except for our trip in April. Nose to the grindstone. So in a seven-day span, I've been making up for it. This week, by coincidence, I've been able to spend time with three separate out-of-state friends on as many occasions, and tonight is my first ever high school reunion, so I can spend time with a few more out-of-state friends. Shout out to Montclair High, class of 78. This is part two of a multi-part series on Alina Makuri. She was a powerful force in Greek theater and performed in the first Greek movies to break into mainstream cinema. She was a free spirit when honor, marriage, and motherhood was still the expected path for a Greek woman. She was a voice for her beloved Greece when it needed her most. In today's episode, we'll talk about Melina's rising star on the stage while chaos and civil war rocked the country and how she finally made her way into film. When we left Melina last week, she had worse than flopped in her 1944 stage debut. She was a spoiled upper-class girl with a rich husband who never suffered during the worst of the deprivations caused by the Nazis. She was living for thrills like any day might be her last. And now in her stage debut, she was portraying a long-suffering supporter of the Greek resistance who condemns her collaborator father. The audience didn't buy it. She was a well-fed, well-housed, and to some degree, well-protected woman, thanks to her husband and her black marketing boyfriend. And everybody in Athens knew it. The play closed abruptly with the sudden start of the Civil War close on the heels of the end of the Nazi occupation in 1944. Communist partisans who played a big role in the Greek resistance had marched into Athens expecting to be welcomed into the political body that would form the new Greek government. They were soon literally battling the more conservative Federalists and Royalists in Athens. So Greeks continued to suffer. This time, even Molina's luxurious apartment was feeling the strain. Friends escaping neighborhoods that had become battlefields squeezed into the apartment with the rest of the refugees who'd been there since the Nazi occupation. They were sharing beds, sleeping on floors, in chairs. The Nazis had conquered Greece but hadn't damaged the infrastructure. Civil war was different, with the opposing forces sometimes fighting from neighborhood to neighborhood or even block to block trying to force each other out. Melina and her husband Pond's neighborhood was safe for the moment, but there was no electricity and running water was only available occasionally. Food was becoming hard to come by, even for them. But Pond had British connections and managed to secure food from them when the Brits entered Athens to try to manage the peace. Kind of like the caretakers. Melina describes the smell of so many unwashed bodies mixed with the odor of tallow candles they used for light. Where they got the animal fat for the candles, I don't know but unfortunately, I can just about imagine the smell. The violence during this time was horrific. Besides the fighting, there were assassinations back and forth between the royalists and the communists. Royalists were gunning down partisans they'd fought beside against the Nazis. Communists were breaking into presumed collaborators' houses to kill them. There was a violent demonstration in the streets in December where more Greeks died, 
In her memoir, I Was Born Greek, Melina says, nameless atrocities were committed on both sides. She includes the horrific story of Elena Papadaki, one of the biggest actors of the Greek stage at that time. And Greek stage was a thing, very popular, beloved performers, known nationwide. Papadaki was one of those. She'd been friendly with the Nazis, puppet prime minister of Greece, John Ravis, during the occupation. According to Melina, Papadaki was dragged out of her home by the communists and shot. Not right there in the street. She was bundled off and stood in an informal, unofficial trial, like rapidly. And it was held by the people who grabbed her. Um, and that was how the famed actor died. Things had gotten real for Melina. Uh, friends in the resistance had died at the hands of the Nazis, but now Greeks were killing Greeks. It was just, it was different. Alexis, Melina's underworld criminal boyfriend who profited so heavily from the black market, had seen it all coming long before the Nazis were driven from Greece. He knew reprisals and infighting were coming. He shot himself shortly after the Nazis departed. He'd lived high and consorted with the enemy. If a national treasure like Elena Papadaki could be dragged out and executed for having dinner with the prime minister, can you imagine what the fate of a man who profited off of the suffering the Greeks would be? The caretaker Brits didn't want the communists anywhere near the gov new government of Greece and demanded they hand over their guns. Look, communists had a sucky reputation for a reason when it came to controlling governments, but a lot of these guys were heroes coming off a fierce mountain fighting, and I wondered if things could have been handled differently, like a cooling off period would have been the way. At first, the communists refused to hand over their guns, and reprisals and street fighting continued. After months more skirmishing on the promise that communists who turned in their arms would be pardoned, the former partisans finally agreed to disarm. Imprisonment, deportations, and executions followed. This period of peace, if you can call it that, lasted a year. Then civil war broke out again. And the Brits were tired of it and handed over the role of caretaker of Greece to the Americans. I'm not going to continue to get too much into the political details. It's it's so complicated and so fraught and, and would need a multi-part series of its own to really make sense. But all of this mayhem influenced Melina's life. She was living in this environment, and that's what I'm concentrating on here. So meanwhile, as all of this was going on, Melina was working for a small theater company, doing two shows a day for eight weeks. And then they'd start performing a new play, two shows a day for eight weeks. She was acting in mediocre plays, learning her craft, dodging violence in, in the streets in between uh, performances. She got involved with an American soldier who had been born in Greece and immigrated to the United States with his parents as a child, a fellow named George. Yes, another George. Very popular name, Yorgos. We have several in our family. When George was reassigned back to the States, he proposed to Melina, offering to take her back to New York with him. And with all the suffering and chaos going on, Melina seriously considered it, even though she knew he expected her to become a housewife and a mother. But what she said to him was, ask Pan, her husband Pan. She was still married. So George did ask Pan. Pan told him, go back to New York, wait six months. He, Pan, would try to talk Melina out of it, trying to convince her to stay in Greece. But if at the end of six months she was still interested, 
he would give her his blessing and grant a divorce. George left for the States. Marlena decided to stay. Shortly after this, in 1945, Marlena was given a leading role in a respected professional acting troupe. She was cast as Lavinia in Eugene O'Neill's play, Morning Becomes Electra. Wow, now she was finally a leading actress in a major Greek theater company. Definitely glad she decided not to become a New York housewife. Opening night, she learns backstage from a friend that her nemesis, a very prominent theater critic who bashed every one of her previous stage performances, was sitting front and center in the theater. The pressure was really on, but she figured there was nothing she could do about it. The show went on. The audience loved the show, but the next morning, Melina, she didn't want to look, but she looked. In the morning paper, the very famous, very influential theater critic who always hated her praised her performance. Audiences raved and she was a hit. The play was a hit. More successes followed and she was on her way. On her way to doing what a lot of newly successful actors did, she formed her own theater company. She rented a theater, recruited some great actors, a seasoned director. She chose a play written by one of Greece's greatest modern poets, Kostas Palamas, and it flopped. And every play they tried to stage after that first flop also flopped. So just because you're a good actor getting great reviews doesn't mean you should cut ties with the folks that got you there and form your own theater troupe. From top of the world to down in the dumps in one season. Melina jumped at the chance when her old acting teacher, the great Dimitrios Sondiris, newly appointed head of the Greek National Theater, offered her a contract. Now she'd be on the biggest stage in Greece with the biggest names. She'd be back on top. Except all Dimitris wanted from Melina was rehearsal sessions. No roles were assigned to her. She never made it onto the stage except for a few little minor roles, just reading and rehearsals while he critiqued her. She said she felt after a while that he was Pygmalion refusing to allow his creation, his Galatea, see the spotlight. Pretty soon, though, she got another offer, this time from Karolitz Kuhn, a well-known director of ancient Greek theater productions, already famous all over Europe. He wanted to stage a streetcar named Desire, and he wanted Melina to play Blanche. Melina wanted to play Blanche. Who wouldn't? Randiris wouldn't release her from her contract. The contract where he was not actually required to cast her in a production and therefore did not. She begged, she pleaded, but to no avail. Her oft-ignored husband, Pan, came through again. He broke his leg. I'm crying because she considered this to be a big favor he did her. He broke his leg and he chose a specialist in Switzerland to do the surgery because Pan. Rondidis had always been after Melina to fix her overbite, so she suggested a temporary release from her contract to join Pan in Switzerland and fix her teeth. Rondidis thought this was a great idea, and Melina hoped her absence would soften Rondidis and allow her her freedom to go on to other things when she came back. Pan had his surgery. Melina had her teeth fixed. They returned to Athens. Kuhn was still hoping to get Melina to start his production, Rondidis was still refusing. What happened next was very Greek, very dramatic, a Greek action scene that played out on the streets of Athens. Scene. Melina is at the National Theater, begging once again to be released from her contract at the Greek National Theater. Rondidis refuses. 
Melina threatens to kill herself and runs out of the theater. Vrandiris in hot pursuit. The tracks from the tramway ran nearby, and a tram is heading their way. Melina runs toward the approaching tram, planning to throw herself under it. Vrandiris is still running behind her, slowly gaining. He leaps forward. Just as they reach the tracks, he grabs her and pulls her back from danger. A crowd gathers. Vrandiris tells her, Okay, you can play branch, but remember everything I taught you. Melina's memoir is very cinematic. Why no one has made a movie based on it, I don't know. I would go see that movie. I would go see that movie repeatedly. So Melina was able to accept the starring role in Kuhn's production of Streetcar. The music was composed by Manos Hajidakis, who had become one of the most influential Greek composers of the 20th century. He'd also composed the music for Melina's star turn in Morning Becomes Electra. We'll hear his name again and again throughout Melina's career. Anyway. Melina plays Blanche, the juiciest character in Tennessee Williams' play Streetcar Named Desire. This was 1949, two years after the play hit Broadway, so still a sensation. And opening night, Melina and the cast get a standing ovation. Dimitri Sandiris was in the audience, and he shocked Melina with his praise. And it was time for Melina to take another lover, a man she called Piros and says he was a hero of World War II. Google was not kind to me when I tried to find him. There was a Greco-Turkish war hero of the same name who died in 1930 when Melina was 10 years old. So not the guy. Was Melina using this other name to avoid identifying him? It doesn't make sense. He, they were together for too long. And if he was a hero, people knew. Greek Google, help me out. Piros was an intellectual exciting, hedonistic. And she describes him saying, the paganism of Greece, surviving underneath centuries of Christianity, came out in Pyrrhus. It was Pyrrhus who made me a woman. He taught me what pleasure is. Their affair lasted for seven years. Melina continued to perform on major stages in Greece. And in the summer, she played in touring companies that visited small villages all over the mainland, in the islands and in Greek communities all over Europe and the Middle East. Things were pretty quiet in Athens during the summer, and summer touring groups paid well. At this point, Melina was trying not to use Pound's money. She was trying to use her own, a little independence for the wife who also had lovers. Melina's first song release happened to come out in 1949, and she wrote some of her own songs and sang covers of other composers and singers. Most of these were apparently singles, it's easier to get a hold of releases from the 60s and 70s, but I was able to find the names of a couple of older ones, but this was a smaller part of her career. Soon, Melina and a friend visited Paris for the first time to attend a theater and see the sights. She met the famous French playwright, Marshal Lacade, in a cafe. He offered to write a part for her in the Edith Piaf play he was preparing. Imagine. But Melina had a contract to fulfill on the Greek stage. However, the following year, she went back to France and made the acquaintance of many famous French writers and artists, including the great Colette, who must have been pretty old at the time, but forever vivacious and entertaining. This time, she stayed for a few years and took roles in the so-called Boulevard plays written by Arcad and others. Melina made her Paris stage debut in one of Arcade's plays. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly because I don't pronounce French, uh, French I apologize. 
boulevard plays were popular art, not the plays attended by the elites, the intellectuals. They weren't major plays followed by the innovators of French theater, but often comedies or dramas that were attended by and meant to entertain the general public. Of course, sometimes the elites did attend because doesn't everybody just want to have a good time? According to Melina, the French actors she was going to work with weren't initially very welcoming. Everybody assumed she was sleeping with Archad, and that's how she got the part. Their names even made it into the gossip rags. She had cartoons drawn in French newspapers that starred her. But Melina was faithful to her lover, Piros, if not her husband. Her first performance was not very well received, but after that she seemed to settle in and even make peace with the Paris theater folk. All the while networking, making friends in the French art world, Jean Cocteau, Francois Sagan, Sartre. And she became fluent in French and German. Her five-year Paris theater stint raised her profile. Important Europeans from all over the continent visited the Paris stages, so this could only work in her benefit. In 1953, Melina won the Marika Katopoli Prize, an award honoring Greek theater performers. It was named in honor of one of the greatest actors of the Greek stage, who reigned from 1908 until her retirement in 1953. Soon, Melina returned to Greece and joined the theater of Marika Katopoli, starring in a variety of plays, including her first major comedy, The Seven Year Itch. To give a flavor of what life and the political climate of Greece was like, by then, any left-leaning citizens, not just communists, were persecuted by the government in power. Theater owners lost their theaters, actors, writers, and scientists went to prison. Remember Manolis Glezos, one of the two heroic teenagers we talked about last week? They'd punched up the morale of the Greek people during the Nazi occupation at the risk of their own lives by pulling down the enormous swastika flag that loomed over the Acropolis. This guy, he was in prison during this time. A leading Greek economist by the name of Batsas, whose father was a war hero and an admiral in the Greek Navy, was executed by this government for disagreeing with their policies. And a communist leader, who was also a leader and hero of the resistance, Nikos Pelovianis, was also executed. It was a rule by fear and intimidation. There's no strength in a government that can't tolerate differences of opinion. That's how the Nazis came to power, and we don't like them. And Melina was living in this climate of fear. She tells a story in her memoir about an actor she knew and called Sabina and the overwhelming devotion of Greece to Melina's new boss, Marika Katopoli. Sabina was a leftist, a big no-no. Having opinions at all was a big no-no. The Greek police intercepted a letter Sabina had written that was anti the current government. She was arrested, quickly tried, and sentenced to death. Dame Marika Katopoli was having none of it. She knew, she knew the right people. She swooped in from her comfortable perch as owner of a top theater group and went complaining to the big boys in control. Sabina was released into Kotopoli's custody and hired into the company. All of this, meanwhile, is shaping Melina, who had been so sheltered for parts of her life. The war, a little bit. This period of civil war afterwards was really shaping who Melina would come to be. And she made the risky move of joining the Actors' Union, not looked upon happily by the government. This was surprising for a woman of her background. She referred to herself as a woman from the right side of the tracks. But she saw how many elderly actors struggled to keep going because there was no pension to pay for food or shelter. She saw how badly some actors were treated by their companies. 
She had so many stories of the chaos and retaliation against left-leaning artists who weren't even necessarily political. She knew she was spared because she was connected through her family that still worked in the government and Pond and his influence. But she also knew that not everyone was, was as protected as she was. Joining the union was her way of showing she knew that and wanted to change for the better. She didn't like the idea of getting involved in politics, but joining the union was her first political act. Up to now, original Greek theater and Greek music had been stagnant. The meat of plays in Greece were the ancient classics or Greek translations of American and European plays. New artists were emerging and creating, and Melina got to join them for the ride. The man who is called the father of modern Greek theater, one of the most prominent Greek playwrights of the 20th century, was Yakovos Kambanelis. He was kind of a Renaissance man. He wrote poetry that was widely read and turned into songs by leading Greek composers who were also stepping into prominent roles. He later became a screenwriter and novelist, and in 1954, he wrote a play for Melina called Stella. In steps Michalis Kakoyanis, theater and film director who specialized in classical plays like Euripides. Kakoyanis read the manuscript, loved it, and wanted to do Stella as a movie. You may not know you know him. Kakoyanis later directed Zorba the Greek. Greek movies up to this time were nothing to write home about. They were melodramatic, usually poorly acted, following the same formula again and again. Greece imported movies from other countries, but nobody was importing movies from Greece. Kakoyanis had already directed something different in Greek films, Windfall in Athens. Greek cinema was about to get everyone's attention. Molina had already tried to break into movies overseas. She'd had one catastrophic screen test in London with Alex Corda and hightailed it back to Greece in the theater. Now was her big chance. Up-and-coming composer Manos Hadidakis, who'd written the score from Lena's star turns in Morning as Electra and Streetcar, was quickly on board for Stella. Melina was paid $2,000 to star in the film, which was the highest salary paid to an actor in Greece ever. But the main draw for Melina was Kakoyanis and the character, Stella. Stella was something completely different in Greek film. She was strong, independent. She was a career girl who never wanted to marry. Melina says in her memoir, in those days in Greece, if a girl was unmarried at the age of 21, she was an embarrassment to her family, and she was wept over as an old maid. No kidding. A couple decades later, my auntie started perusing their list of eligible professional men when I was 14. And to make the character even more alluring and repellent, Stella was a bazooki singer. You've heard of bazooki music, even if you don't know what it's called. The instrument is a long-stemmed, round-bodied, stringed instrument, essential in Greek music. Back in the 1950s, bazooki music was considered low-class. It was popular in working neighborhoods where men gathered to drink at the smoky bazooki bars, where this kind of Greek blues was played and denigrated, as American blues once was when the source was poor and working-class black musicians. Bazooki music was originally adapted from Turkish music, but so wedded and adapted to Greek sound that it is very representative of our culture. Like bazookis are now in Irish music. But not much appreciated at the time by the elites. They're so annoying and not a lot of fun, whether American or Greek. Manos Hadidakis was on a mission to change this. 
He'd already started going around the country recording the best bazooki players, who created their own music, often not written down. He used this as a basis for his score of the movie. He'd also released a groundbreaking album meant to bring bazooki music to everyone in Greece, and it worked. It would be the only other music I heard more than Melina's in our house. Stella was noticed by film critics worldwide. It was nominated for Best Film at Cannes. Melina was nominated for Best Actress. Imagine! Hundreds of foreign reporters attended, as well as famous actors, directors, writers, and producers from all over the world. The American film Marty won the Golden Palm for Best Film. Melina said no Best Actress was named, and I checked. There was no Best Actress award even listed in the results for 1955. No explanation although apparently some of the judges did get drunk the night before the results were decided, but I only have her word on that. But Stella had made it to the international film market. Everyone knew about it. And Melina, everybody knew about Melina now. But something else very important happened for Melina during Khan. She met the screenwriter-director, Jules Dassan, who had been there to represent his film, Rafifi, the French entry for Best Film. Dasan was an American filmmaker who had been made famous for his 1940s films, Brute Force and Naked City. He was a rising star in film. Then came the 1950s and McCarthyism. That national self-righteous paranoia that destroyed many lives without doing a dang bit of good for the U.S. Like a lot of young, naive artists during the Great Depression, Dasan had joined the Communist Party, but resigned membership in 1939. He was blacklisted in Hollywood after another director offered up Dasan's name to the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was pretty dang un-American itself. Unable to find work at home, Dassan left for Europe and began making films in France, like the aforementioned Rafifi of the Cannes Film Festival shortlist. He was impressed by Melina's performance in Stella, and he wanted her for, for a film adaption of Nikos Katsanzaki's novel, Christ Recrucified, to be filmed in Greece. Huge, huge important novelist. There were a lot of complications in getting the movie made, but it would be the beginning of a lifelong collaboration, both professional and personal, and one that would eventually propel Molina herself into politics for the sake of her country. Join us next time, hopefully on time, for the next installment in our series on Molina Makuri. When we talk about Molina's film and stage successes, her calling out of the military junta in Greece in the 1960s, exile, and her triumphant return to Greece, and her powerhouse moves to keep the arts important in Europe and to rally for the return of the Parthenon marbles stolen by the weasel Elgin and still held hostage by the British Museum for over 200 years. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Darius Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Visit our website at StealthGreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us to get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at Greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yes. Yes.